familiar to you. That's not fair. I got in trouble, but he didn't, and he did the same thing. I did all the work, but she got all the commission. Why is his piece of cake bigger than mine? It's not fair. In our house, that usually comes along with the phrase that says, suck it up, buttercup, life's not fair. I'm a really compassionate father, if you don't know. But life's not fair, is it? It's not fair at all. In fact, I want to talk to you about something this morning that is really not fair in life. Grace. Good morning, TBA. My name is Brian Legg. Glad you're here. I'm part of our lead pastor team here, if you've not met me before. And we're launching a new series today called Grace. So what is grace anyway? I mean, how do we define grace? Isn't that just that thing that you say with family and friends right before you eat and have a good meal, right? I bet most of you, if I asked you what grace was, you could give me a definition. You could tell me what you understand grace to be. But I wonder how many of us really understand grace. See, I'm not even sure that we can fully comprehend grace. It's one of those great mysteries of God that just seems to become deeper the more we study it and the more that we think we understand about it. It's like we keep finding new things, new depth of meaning. We have a new experience, and it's like you're starting all over again with a whole new level of understanding and a whole new level of exploration. But there's one thing that I'm sure of. Grace is not fair. Not at all. It's not fair. In fact, it's anything but fair. It essentially destroys the idea of fairness. The two can't even be in the same proximity and make any sense because fairness screams of you and I getting what we deserve, getting the same treatment, getting exactly what we deserve, what we've earned, what we're entitled to. But grace gives us exactly what we need, opposite of what we deserve. Grace gives us exactly what we need, opposite of what we deserve. There's no earning grace. We're not entitled to grace. In fact, grace has nothing to do with you or I when we're on the receiving end of it. It leaves us helplessly at the mercy of the one giving grace. And every single one of us has experienced grace at one time or another in our lives, haven't we? A lot of times we experience it from somebody else. Like that moment when you're driving down the road and you pass a cop and you're going at least 10 or 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Some of you are going more like 40 over the speed limit. And either he doesn't pull you over Or he pulls you over, but instead of giving you a ticket, he gives you a warning. That's grace. Or when you're taking that test in school and you bomb it, but the teacher decides she's going to throw out that test or throw out the lowest score in the grade book, and all of a sudden it doesn't even count, it doesn't matter. That's grace. Or you make a huge mistake at work, but your boss decides that he's just going to overlook it because you've learned from your mistake. You're not going to do that again. It doesn't matter that it costs the company lots of money. Or maybe you get busted in a lie to your friend, or even worse, to your spouse. But they choose to forgive and forget, and you go on as if nothing happened. See, I'm sure every one of you can think of a time in your life that you've experienced grace in some form or fashion. In fact, probably lots of times, if you would just stop and ponder about it a little bit. But the ultimate expression of grace happened 2,000 years ago. When Jesus gave up all of his privileges as God all of his rights. He came to earth. He walked among us as a man. Then he died a criminal's death on a cross, not for his sin, but for our sin, for the crimes that you and I committed. 
That was the ultimate expression of grace. Last week we celebrated Easter. And Easter is that one time a year where no matter what's going on, it seems that we just stop and we ponder, what has Christ done for me? What does grace look like? We talk about the crucifixion story. More importantly, we talk about the resurrection and how Christ overcame death and gave us new life because of what he did. But we're reminded in those moments about his grace and the power of that. But what I wonder is, today, just one week after Easter, do we really grasp the depths of his love? Do we really have any concept of the depths of grace that was poured out on us and continues to be poured out time after time after time after time because of that one act? Paul tells us in Romans 3 that we're all sinful and that we all deserve the penalty of death because that's the requirement for atonement for sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. He goes on in verse 23, for everyone, catch the wording there, not some people, not a few people, everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now I look around the room and I see a few of you kind of nodding and you're familiar with these scriptures. You've heard this before. You know that I'm walking you down what a lot of people know is the Romans road. It's the plan of salvation. And you get it. But do you really get it? Do you really understand and have you come to embrace the depths of your own despair without grace? Do you fully comprehend how sinful you are and the fact that sin separates us from God? It provides this block between us. That means that you and I deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God because we've not lived and are not living blameless or pure lives. We can't. See, God's standard is perfection. And I hate to break it to you, but you're not perfect. Neither am I. In fact, we're anything but perfect. Far from it. We're not good enough, never have been, never will be. There's nothing that we can do to work or earn our spot in heaven. Every single one of us needs to be saved from ourselves. Let that sink in just a second. Every single one of us needs to be saved from ourselves because we want to be our own Savior. It's the pride within us, but we're helpless and hopeless on our own. Our only option is grace. Our only chance is God's mercy and love, his grace, being poured out on us, undeserved, unearned, unmerited. We are all condemned to hell except for the grace of God in our lives. And all of us, not just the bad people. You know, we have a lot of myths about heaven and hell and God's love and grace, and some of these things we've just embraced as truth over the years. Maybe not outwardly or even verbally, but kind of subconsciously. I mean, it, it just goes without saying that good people are going to go to heaven, bad people are going to go to hell, right? Isn't that how it works? It makes sense. It's the sense of justice within all of us. It sounds fair. If you do good things, if you're moral, if you're nice to others, if you volunteer your time and your money and you give to people in need, of course, you're going to go to heaven, right? Well, find that in your Bible and bring it to me. I'd like to see it. Good luck. Because it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, 
I would say that there's a lot of good people, according to our standards, who will die and go to hell unless they come to understand their desperate need for a Savior. Unless they choose to believe in Jesus and accept his free gift of grace that gives them right standing before God. See, Paul goes on in that same chapter, Romans 3, starting in verse 24, says, Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This is a a theological term called imputation where literally God sees us as righteous because Jesus is righteous. And he takes on our sin. It's this exchanging of places. He takes our sin. He dies, pays the penalty for our sin and for our crimes. And when God looks at us, instead of seeing our sinful condition and our brokenness, he sees Jesus and his righteousness. It's the only way. In fact, Jesus said himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You can never be good enough. You can't earn your way into heaven. In fact, the only way to experience eternal life with God, the only way to have that right relationship restored is to believe in Jesus and accept his free gift of grace. But see, here's the contrast to that same myth for us. Because when we start using our standards to judge people, there's going to be a lot of bad people who are in heaven. It's hard for us to understand that. I I mean, it's, it's hard to even believe, but that's the unfairness of grace that I was referring to. Grace is not just extended to good people. It's extended to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and believes. Listen to that again. Grace is not just extended to good people. It's extended to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and believes. What do you do with the criminal on the cross in the story of Christ's crucifixion? Here's a guy who deserved death. He deserved everything he had coming to him. He had lived a terrible life. He even admits that in the story. But he turns to Jesus and he says, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't tell him about all of his sins. He doesn't tell him about all his wrongs. He doesn't tell him about the consequences that are coming. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. There was a change of heart in that moment. This bad person, by our standards sees Christ for who he is. He recognizes him. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise because he believes. But that's not fair. This guy's a criminal. He's a menace to society. He's done nothing productive his entire life. And you're telling me he gets to go to heaven? That's grace. Undeserved, unmerited, unearned. God's mercy and unconditional love poured out on his creation that has betrayed him over and over and over and over. Grace. So you and I tend to measure ourselves and even each other by our own standards. The good or the bad that we've done. But those are our standards, not God's. By God's standards, we all deserve death, and that's why he sent Jesus to die for us, because there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. We need a Savior. When Jesus walked the earth among us, he often told stories to help illustrate the things that he was trying to teach. And we know those stories as parables. And one of those stories that he told has become a favorite of mine. It tells the story of grace with a real amazing depth. In fact, differing levels of the the picture of grace is found in it. It's the parable of the prodigal son. 
And you'll find it in Luke chapter 15. And in fact, I'd encourage you, go home and read the whole story. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you now. Probably you've heard it before, but this morning I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version for the sake of time. The story goes basically like this. A man has two sons. The younger son is restless. He's ready to start life on his own. He's tired of living under dad's rules. So he goes to the dad and he asks for his share of the estate. The dad liquidates his assets, gives the boy what he wants. And we've all seen this story before. The boy runs off to another town, to another city, and he lives it up. He's partying every day, every night, all the booze, all the women he can buy. And then he runs out of money. And he hits rock bottom. And he's starving, literally. And he finally begins to realize how good he had it at home. Even his dad's servants are living in luxury compared to where he's at in life. So he goes home a little more humble, a little more aware of life around him. And he's ready to beg his dad, just let me work for you. Let me pay off my debt. Just, just give me a place to live and, and food to eat just like your servants have, and I, I'll pay off my debt. And he's got this speech all prepared. He's just looking to survive. But the dad's waiting and watching for him. And as the boy reaches the edge of town, dad runs and meets him. And he cuts off the speech that the son has prepared. And instead, he gets him cleaned up and he gives him new clothes. And he throws a party in his honor because he's so excited that he's home. He's safe, he's sound, he's secure. But there's an older brother in the story. And the older brother can't believe what's happened. I mean, his his little brother just disgraced his dad ten times over in all the things that he's done. And yet, he's getting a party thrown in his honor. The older brother's followed all the rules. He's lived peacefully under his dad's authority for years. And what's he gotten out of it? Nothing. Not even a weekend away with his friends, or not even a a, a party with just a little bit of food and fun. He refuses to go into the party that his dad's throwing for his brother. So his dad comes out to him, and he tries to assure him of how loved he is. And he invites him to come into the celebration but the older brother refuses. Now see, most of you probably heard that story before. And in fact, most people know and love the story because it's such a beautiful picture of God's grace. How much he loves us. That even when we've wandered far away and done these terrible things, he still loves us and his grace is sufficient. He restores his youngest son, even after being insulted by him and losing half of his wealth because of the boy's decisions. Think about what happened. It'd be like me going to my dad. My dad was here in first service, so I kind of interacted with him a little bit. But it'd be like me going to my dad and going, I wish you were dead already. Can I just have my stuff? That's really what he said. I want my inheritance. I want my half. I know you're not dead yet, but whatever you're going to give me when you die, whatever you're going to leave for me, I want it now. And I can tell you how that goes with my dad. He's a pretty generous guy, but it's going to be more like, hit the road, Jack. You ain't getting nothing. Not to mention what my sister may do to me when she finds out. But this is what he did. And instead of the dad coming back harshly, what does he do? He liquidates his assets. He gives the boy his half. This means he's got to sell off land. He's got to sell off livestock. He's got to do all kinds of stuff. He's going to make life less comfortable for him and for his remaining son and all of his household so that the younger brother can have his half of the estate. And don't you think he knows what the boy's going to do when he gets the money? What do most young boys, young teenagers do when they have that kind of funds available? The dad disgraces himself by liquidating his stuff and giving away his part of the estate. 
And then when the boy comes back, he disgraces himself again. He runs out to meet him at the edge of town. In fact, to be able to run, a man of his stature would be wearing long robes. So he's got to lift his robes and run, which is disgraceful. A man in that culture never lifts his robes, never exposes his legs, especially not his knees. You and I may not understand that because we come from a different time, but this was a disgraceful thing for the dad to have to run to his son. But he runs to save his son because he knows that if the townspeople get to him before he does... He's toast. See, they lived in this small community where everybody knew everybody. And they knew what was going on. They knew what the son had done. They knew the disgrace the father had gone through to give him the funds. And at best case scenario, the townspeople would have met him at the town gates and said, get out, you're never welcome here again. Worst case, they probably would have killed him. The dad saves his boy. Disgraces himself yet again. And when he meets him, what does he do? He immediately welcomes him back into the family. There's no contract drawn up. There's no repayment plan. There's no anything. He just forgives the debt and brings him back in, restores him as a son, as if nothing ever happened. And see, that's a cool story. And that's where most people stop when they read the story because it's the story of the prodigal son. He runs off, does the crazy things. Dad welcomes him back. Great picture of grace. But that's not the part of the story that gets me. I'm sure for a lot of you, you relate to that. Maybe you've had those moments where you've been outwardly rebellious and you've run and you've been crazy and done those things and and you know or you've experienced how God will bring you back and restore you. And that's great, but that's not my story. See, my story is I've grown up in church. I came to Christ really as a child and I've strived to live for him all of my life. Don't get me wrong. I'm just as far from perfect as anybody in the room. My, My family could tell you all about my sins as a kid growing up all the way through. My family now, I can tell you about my sons yesterday, so I'm just as far from perfect as all of you. But I've spent my whole life striving to be as close to perfect as I could be, striving to earn approval. I've done my best to follow the rules and live right and to make God proud of me. And there's the problem. I've spent most of my life trying to be good enough. Trying to gain the approval of God, of my parents, of my friends, my wife and my girls, even strangers, so I could be good enough. You ever felt that way? Without even realizing I was doing it, I've spent most of my life trying to earn my salvation. Working for grace. Trying to be my own savior. And it doesn't work that way. See, the older brother, he refused to go into the party because the truth is he was just having his own little pity party outside. I'm sure it went down something like this in today's dialect. Dad, I have worked my tail off for you, and what do I get out of it? Nothing. I've done everything you've asked me to do, yet my punk brother comes home, and after living as a heathen and doing all this junk that he's done, you couldn't be more excited about him, and you're throwing a party. What's up with that? The older brother is judgmental, and he's harsh. But the truth is, he has the exact same problem that his younger brother has. It just plays out a little differently. The truth is, he's only interested in his dad's stuff, not so much his dad. He's mad because if you stop and think about it, his brother coming back into the family means that he's losing out. 
Because whose stuff is that now? Yeah, it's the dad's, but it's his half of the inheritance. I mean, the dad's already liquidated his assets. He's given half of his stuff away. The little brother took it, ran off and squandered all of it. So now big brother's taking the hit. When little brother comes home, he goes, there goes my money. You just gave me my new clothes. You just threw a party with my funds. The truth is, he's just as upset because he's more interested in the stuff, and he's losing part of his inheritance. See, both sons are after the wrong thing. They're both after the wrong thing. They want the father's stuff when the real blessing is the relationship that they have with the father. The greatest blessing or benefit that either of them could possibly receive is simply to walk in relationship with their dad. To be loved unconditionally, to be cared for, provided for, to be safe and secure. But they're blinded by their pride and their greed. See, even with the older son, the father disgraces himself by going out to see him. He's throwing this big party. He's invited the whole town. He's celebrating his younger son coming home. The dad is the host. He's the man of honor at this party. He's the one throwing it. It goes against all customs for him to leave that party for any reason. And yet he goes out to talk to his older son who was expected to be at the party. Of all people to not show up and for him to go after them as a guest, his own family? But his son's pride has caused him to stay outside. And so the father disgraces himself again by leaving his own party, leaving his guests there without him being there so he can go and pursue his older son. And he goes out and he shares with him how much he loves him and how all of his stuff is already his, that he has access to all of it. But it's not enough. The dad's willing to overlook the pride that's caused his oldest son to respond this way. But the story tells us that the older son still doesn't go back in. See, that's how much God loves us. It doesn't matter which brother we are in the story, whether we're openly rebellious or we're rebelling in secret. God loves us the same, and he offers the same measure of grace. He offers the same unconditional love. All we have to do is accept his grace, to embrace his love, to trust him to be our Savior. Because we all need a Savior. And we all need to experience grace like those two brothers. I want you to ponder that as you watch this video. kitchen table we have this metal tin bowl receptacle thing where we keep all those things that don't seem to go anywhere else do you have one of these places in your house it's maybe a shelf or a drawer it's that place where you put all all those all those possessions that are just have no home is where they end up and so at any one time you know it's got like a shoelace and it's got a key to you have no idea what and you know maybe some rubber cement and a stick of dynamite or something i don't know so anyway a few days ago my uh my wife Kristen and I were cleaning up the kitchen, we're picking things up, and, and I noticed this little white ball in the metal bowl, and I'm struck with the fact that I've never seen it before. And so I turn to Kristen and I say like, hey, where'd this white ball come from, where'd you get it? She says, I have no idea, I've never seen it before.
and our boys are over here. So I was like, hey, you guys, where'd this, uh, where'd this white ball come from? I haven't seen it before. And, and the one son, my younger son, he says, what? I don't know, never seen it. And my older son says, it's just the strangest thing. I don't know. I don't know where it came from. Do you know where it came from? And then he like keeps going in the same voice. He's, he's like, it's just the strangest thing. I mean, this little white ball, it appeared out of nowhere. Who knows where it came from? And Kristen and I look at each other and, and we have this look between us like, do you know who this boy is? I mean, for a few brief moments, he's some other kid and he just keeps going with these bizarre gestures. It's like he's been possessed by the spirit of Urkel or something. I mean, for a few brief moments, he's this other boy, you know, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. But I mean, it's just like a, you know, it's just a little white ball and it's, Kristen and I look at each other like, this is not that big of a deal. So a couple days later, my wife is home with the boys and she's in one room and they're playing another room and and uh, she hears this ruckus, and the two of them run into the room where she's at, and the younger son is crying, and he's insisting that his brother hit him. And my older son is going, I didn't hit him. I don't know what you're talking about. It's the strangest thing. It's the weirdest thing. I didn't hit him. And he's going on and on, and the younger one with tears streaming down his face is going, no, he hit me. And my older son is going, no, I don't know what you're talking about. It's the strangest thing. It's the weirdest thing. And then Kristen just says to him, Kind of like you don't know where the white ball came from. And he just freezes. Like the, the, the technical legal word here is busted. You know that moment, like when your junk catches up to you? It's like maybe not that day, maybe not the next day, maybe not for a while. But given enough time, it always finds us. Like there's this great phrase, wherever you go, there you are. It's written in the Bible in the book of Galatians. Like, don't be misled. No one makes a fool out of God. Whatever we plant, we'll end up harvesting. It's like one way or another, given enough time, our sins find us out. It always catches up with us, doesn't it? So my boy stands there in front of his mom, frozen. And then he turns and runs upstairs. Because sometimes it's easier to run upstairs, isn't it, than to face the truth. Now this whole time, I haven't even been there. I'm coming home and I call Kristen and she tells me this whole story. And so I'm driving along thinking like, what am I supposed to do when I get home? I mean, I know I should do something, but I have no idea what to do. And so I get home and Kristen tells me that she hasn't heard a sound from him upstairs the whole time. So I go upstairs and I go check in his room and he's not there. So I go and I check in his brother's room and he's not there. And then I check the bathroom and he's not there, which leaves only one option, our bedroom. And so I go and I stand in the doorway of our bedroom and I look in and there 
in the middle of our bed under the covers is a lump the size and shape of my boy. And I mean, at this point, he's been under there at like two hours. I mean, it must be so hot. He must be so miserable. I mean, can he even breathe under there? I feel like I should get him a snorkel. I mean, he just must be miserable. And I start thinking about all the amends he's going to need to make to his mom and to his brother and to me. And then I think about whoever he took the white ball from. We're going we're gonna to have to call them and at some point go over there. He's going to need to take the white ball back and he's going to need to apologize. And, and I stand in the doorway of the bedroom and I, I think about my boy and all of his shame. The kind of shame that he would hide under the covers for that long. And so I go over and I sit down on the edge of the bed and I pull the covers back a little bit. And the first thing I see is just this soaking wet hair, you know, like he's been underwater. And so I pull the covers slowly back until he's just lying there all curled up with his eyes closed and he doesn't move. It's like he has this choice. Like, does he continue, you know, does he grab the covers and pull them back over his head and keep hiding? Or does he just let himself lie there, totally exposed and vulnerable? So I sit on the edge of the bed and I say to him, there's nothing you could ever do that would make me love you less. And then slowly he sits up and he opens his eyes and he plants the soaking wet head right in the middle of my formerly dry shirt and he wraps these little wet warm arms around me and he just starts sobbing and he cries and cries and cries and he's so sorry and so I sit on the edge of the bed holding my boy with the covers pulled back repeating nothing you could ever do to make me love you less. There's nothing you could ever do. Do you realize that? Do you know that? Nothing you could ever do that would make me love you less. I mean, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you will do, I mean, God loves you and God always has, and you can't change that. Because sometimes the white ball seems like everything, doesn't it? It's like, how am I ever gonna get away from it? And so we have no idea what to do with our shame. So we run upstairs and we hide under the covers and we keep hiding because we don't, we don't know where to go or what to do. Maybe you're like, yeah, but you don't understand what I've done. Or you have this, if you only you knew, like it says in the book of Romans, chapter eight in the Bible, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God and Jesus. Nothing, nothing. Nothing can separate you. So may you stop hiding under the covers. May you let God pull the covers back. May you embrace him. May your whole life become a response to the truth that you've always been loved, you are loved, and you always will be loved. And may you know, may you know deep in the depths of your soul that there's nothing you could 
ever do to make him love you less. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you less. Nothing you could ever do to make him love you less. Nothing. Nothing. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves you. So much that he sent his son to die in your place and to take the punishment for your sin and my sin. No matter what you've done or where you've been, he offers grace. There's absolutely nothing you can do to earn or deserve it. It's a free gift to you. It cost you nothing and it cost him everything. What will you do with that gift? As the band plays this morning, maybe some of you in the room today have never accepted that free gift of grace that God offers. And if that's you this morning and you've heard me talk about that and you say, I'd, I'd like to know more about that, I want to ask you to do something bold. I want to ask you that while the band's playing that you would leave your seat and go right over here to our next steps area. Tim and Joni are back there. I'll be back there in a moment. There'll be some others. We would love to talk with you and pray with you about what it means to start that journey following Christ. For a lot of the rest of you in the room, you've already accepted that free gift. You believe in Jesus. You're following after him. But maybe you listen this morning and you realize that you're still living for all the wrong things. The motivations are wrong. You're, you're, you've become like the older brother, feeling like God owes you something. Instead of embracing the depths of the gift of grace that you've received and knowing that simply having relationship with the Father is good enough. You know, I told you earlier that I related more with the older brother than so much the younger brother. And honestly, even this past week, I walked through, or I'm walking through something that has refreshed that in my mind again. I would never verbally say, God owes me anything. I mean, I know better. That, that's not logical. It doesn't make sense. But sometimes I live that way. Sherry and I got some news this past week that really had more to do with her than me, but it was something that was disappointing to both of us, and it affects some direction of where we're going in life. And I found myself at a place where I felt like God owed something to me. Again, I wouldn't verbalize that, but I, I could just tell you that was the wrestling match I was having with God. You know, God, I've given up a lot of things. My family gives up a lot of things for me to be in ministry and work the hours that I work and do the things that I do. I serve your people. I'm following the calling that you placed on my life. Seems like you would want to do this for me, for us. But as I was thinking that, I was reminded quickly and almost harshly that I'm just like the older brother where I'm more interested in the 
stuff of the Father at times, the blessings, the material things, rather than focusing on the relationship and realizing that His grace is enough and the relationship is enough. His unconditional love is enough. So I wonder where you are. You ever get caught in that trap where you find that you want the stuff that you think comes with the relationship with God instead of just seeking the Father? Realizing that when you're in relationship with Him and you've accepted His grace and His love that you already have all of the stuff in an amazing way. I would challenge you this morning, if that's how you're feeling, don't leave here dealing with that. Spend some time with your Heavenly Father. Maybe you need to just talk to Him there at your seat. Kneel at your seat, stand at your seat, whatever you want to do. Maybe you need to come and kneel here at the stage. Feel free. Maybe you need to come back to Next Steps and talk to one of us there. Let us pray with you. His grace is sufficient for you and I. It's a free gift. Cost us nothing, cost him everything. And he extends that grace over and over and over because he loves us so much. Stand with me, and as God speaks to your heart, you respond in obedience this morning. Let's take a moment and pray as the band comes. God, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you again that you love us so much. God, we thank you that you have shown us in so many different ways how deep your grace really runs and how unconditional your love truly is for us. God, help us to embrace that in the way we live our lives. I pray that we would be reminded, just like the video showed us, that there's nothing we could ever do that would make you love us less. But God, love is only as good as the person who receives that love. So help us not only to know and to understand how greatly you love us, but help us to receive your love. And God, just like the sons in the story, the prodigal son story, I pray that whether we're the older brother or the younger brother, whether we've strayed far away or whether we've tried so hard to, to stick close and be good enough that we would be able to step back and just realize that none of those things matter. What matters is walking with you in a relationship, trusting in you, depending upon you, surrendering to you. May we embrace your love this morning in a new and a fresh way. May we understand your grace with new depths and understanding. Speak to our hearts now. In your name we pray. Amen.